Welcome to FEPS Talks, the podcast series of the Foundation for European Progressive Studies. Find out more about us on feps-europe.eu. Welcome to this new episode of FEPS Talks, the FEPS weekly podcast interview. For today's interview, we have a special guest, Xavier Prats-Monet who has been for long high-level official at the European Commission, both working as Director General for Education and Culture, as well as for health and food safety. But after many years within the organization, Xavier, you somehow changed sides and went to take a more active role in civil society. You are now Special Advisor at Teach for All, uh, on top of Senior Advisor for Strategic Initiative at the Open University in Catalonia. And also you are collaborating with the Kim Badman Foundation as President for their uh, European Committee. And today uh, we invited you to have a discussion with David, myself, David uh, Rinaldi, I'm Director for Studies and Policies at the Foundation for European Progressive Studies, covering uh, social portfolio at the Foundation. And we will discuss about education policy. So my very first question for you is, of course, on the impact of the pandemic on education. Uh, the pandemic is a transformative and disruptive business. Uh, it has uh, changed education very fast. What do you think are the changes that will remain with us even after these few months of crisis? Yes, thank you. Well, we haven't seen yet the full impact of the pandemic, right? So we still have to see. But I think that there are a few things that are clear. And of course, it is a very disruptive thing. Uh, in education, I'd say a few things. The most important one is that the pandemic uh, has already increased inequalities significantly. And there's a risk that this increase of inequalities becomes permanent. Why? Because what the pandemic has exposed is that education is not just something for schools or for universities. It's something for everybody. And when you take away the instrument of education as an equalizer, socially and intellectually, then you are left with a real risk of increased exclusion. And this, it has already been a very obvious, especially in developing countries where the welfare state has not been able to compensate for the, the impact. Having said that, I think that in our societies, we have an insatiable thirst for knowledge. So I think that there will be the continuation of a trend that was already there, which is a huge, extraordinary demand for education, in particular, higher education. The OECD had a forecast of an increase of 40,000 new entrants into higher education every day between now and 2030. And I think that ultimately that forecast is probably correct. So we, have, we live in societies where complexity is the rule and education will be even more needed than before. The other thing that I find extremely interesting in the pandemic and education is that education had been mostly isolated from the 25 years of digitalization of our societies. And the pandemic has bluntly ended that. And all of a sudden, um, a world that has been basically insulated, I mean, for example, for kids in most countries and in most schools, the only moment of their lives, of their daily lives, where they were not connected was at school which is you know, quite extraordinary. And what the pandemic has exposed is that for many educators, you know, even university professors, they were basically unable even to upload a PDF on the web. And that was not particularly a problem in education until now, but now it is. So in a way, 
the pandemic has exposed the unsustainable detachment of higher education and education in general for, from the needs of our society. And I think that this is perhaps the most lasting consequence that now I think we'll be confronted with the need to have a much closer look as to what we should be educating for, how, and for whom. And this is, I think, also the opportunity that we change the way we teach and learn and not just a few structural or, you know, circumstantial changes as to how we organize classrooms so that people don't get contagion. There's this, this idea somehow that I perceive a little bit also in, uh, in, uh, in this comment that you, that you raised, that digitalization in general should be able to open up the access to education because the reach uh, is somehow easier. Uh, you can have better economies of scale. Uh, so the idea that through the internet, uh, more people everywhere could link up to the top quality education. Is this a trend that is really happening in real? Do you see uh, digitalization and uh, you know, new technologies impacting the dissemination and the openness, the inclusiveness? of education and the possibility also for lower level of the society, at least in terms of income, to access quality education. Yeah, I mean, technology could do a lot for inclusion, but it won't just by itself. Technology is a tool, not an end in itself. So it depends on the policies you put in place. So the potential is huge. Actually, it's not just the possibility of expanding the demographics of education to make sure that people are not you know, bound by the way that where, where they live or where they are born to get an education. It's not just that. Yeah, there is a huge potential for personalizing education and making sure that you adapt to the different rhythm, capacities, and aptitudes of people. So the potential is enormous, and there's a lot of evidence of how education could do better. It's just that this will not happen unless you have a very determined policy and the resources to address this uh, 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 challenge, and especially unless you improve the support that educators get. Because, you know, there are not so many universal rules in education, but if there is one, it's this, that no education system or institution is better than the quality of its teachers. So if you want to improve anything, you have to improve educators. You have to give them more support, more incentives, more feedback, more evaluation. And this is, I think, the yardstick by which we will know whether technology becomes an instrument to increase or decrease inequality. There are very good insights, actually. I take note myself as I'm a, as I'm a teacher at ULB here in Brussels, at the University of Libre de Bruxelles. Uh, indeed, uh, what you mentioned is somehow a series of transformations that are that should happen to education policy, even besides the current turmoil of, of the pandemic. Somehow, the, the digitalization that were that were ongoing. Plus, I think we are seeing also big changes in the labor market with uh, increasing uh, mobility within the European Union and, and somehow migration all around the globe, globalization, spike in, te in technology. Uh, the economy that is going more green. Um, so how overall uh, the curricula, the competences, the skills that we try to cherish and teach and cultivate at school and the tertiary institution should change and adapt to match the needs of this new world that we have in front of us? Yeah, actually, I think it is quite striking that everything we know about the transmission of knowledge, about the skills that will be needed in the future, is actually not what is being taught. And I'll give you an example. 
if there's anything we know about knowledge and innovation is that it is interdisciplinary. Actually, innovation is antidisciplinary. When you get new ways and new ideas is when different people from different perspectives look at problems. And yet, if you look at most education systems and institutions, they are organized essentially vertically. In a way, the organigram of a university is the armistice between departments. This is what it is. And this is a natural consequence of the way education has been organized for centuries. But I think this is the time, and this is the sense in which technology will be, I think, so disruptive, that this is the time to change this. And if you ask yourself the question, are we teaching young people to prepare them for the future they will live in, or just trying to repeat the past where we lived? I think the answer is not very satisfactory for most cases. So I think we really have to think differently about education. And one way to look at this is, for example, to think about, you know, when you look at Lifelong learning, for example. Everybody talks about lifelong learning. I mean, you made a very interesting study about lifelong learning. It's all very well, but basically, they're all thinking that you have a period of life when you're young where you acquire knowledge and study, and then a period where you work, and maybe, if you're lucky, upgrade your skills a little bit. I think that we know that we live in societies that are so complex, and most disciplines change so much in the substance of their knowledge that we should be thinking maybe not so much in terms of how people get degrees and then some training, but as how people can get a permanent access or subscription, if you want, to the knowledge that universities and schools can provide. So it's a way, in a way, it's changing from buying songs into Spotify. And this change in attitude is, I think, what the pandemic and digitalization will bring about. I'll give you another example. There is so many more people that need to know something about law than people who need a law degree, that is quite extraordinary that we don't have a much more modular, granular, and atomized offer supply of education so that people can actually train themselves and can get the kind of skills that they need rather than repeat the pattern of decades-old departments and disciplines. I think that you know this looks pretty revolutionary, but this is actually what has happened in the rest of our lives. It's just that it hasn't reached education yet. And this is not that to say that education has not made progress or that educators do not make an extraordinary effort, particularly during the pandemic, not at all. It's just that the system is the way it is. I mean, look at a very interesting aspect of education because it is about inequality, which is gender equality. I mean, at the beginning of the 20th century, 70% of women in Europe could not read or write. Today, you go to the Faculty of Medicine in Spain, and 70% of students are women. Now, this is you know, an extraordinary progress. Look at the uh, University of Oxford. They eliminated quotas for women, so the number of women who could become full students of Oxford, in 1957. And that's a major progress. It's just that it took 800 years. So it's not that education systems don't evolve, it's that they have been pretty much insulated from society. And this means essentially that society has not gotten the contribution that higher education institutions can and should give. I mean, can you think of any challenge of our society that is not so complex that it requires the knowledge and expertise of the world of knowledge? Probably not. And yet, I don't think that most universities still have in their mindset 
a mission that is fully devoted to a better society. So in a way, what I'm saying is that we should perhaps think of a transition from the Humboldt model, which started in 1810 with the idea of an university seeking excellence measured by peers. This is the essence of university education. Maybe we should go towards a university that thinks of itself as potentially a more forceful, stronger participant in public life and in policymaking. Yeah, Xavier, you mentioned uh, that um, it would be nice to recognize a sort of uh, right for education to people uh, throughout their, uh, their life. And this is something that goes very much in line with what we recommend in our publication uh, with the Jacques Delors Institute. How to operationalize this? So how to make sure that education is not just uh, something that happens in a few years of our life and uh, you know, um, linked to a specific curricula? What are the, the means that you might have seen uh, developing in different uh, member states or the ideas that you might have to transform this new approach into you know, a, concrete, a concrete new practice? Because I think that sometimes we need to make sure that what you described is actually feasible in practice and it, it is there, it works. Then it might take up. So where it works, how it works, how it can be operationalized. You're very right that the challenge of education policy is not to design great strategies, but to implement them. Because contrary to what many people still think, we know very well what works in education. A different story is to make it happen. And the reason why it's difficult to make it happen is that there is a huge variety of stakeholders that you have to bring together and convince to introduce change. You know, look at, you know, we're talking about the effect of the pandemic. One of the effects of the pandemic is that it has exposed for everyone something that should be an obvious reality, which is that education is not just the matter for schools or universities. It's the matter for everyone. And suddenly, parents have realized how important it is that they are there also for children. And so this is, I think, the challenge for education policy to make sure that you actually get on board the main stakeholders. And this means, in the first place, for any policy to work, to make sure that we have a real understanding as to how you can develop the kind of educators that can actually transmit knowledge properly. I'm saying this because most studies and most policy efforts to expand access to education focus on demand and not so much on supply. In other words, they focus on getting more rights for people to get training, but not so much on what they're being trained about. So the risk we have, as happens in many countries like Spain, for example, is that there is a huge expenditure by the state mostly on vocational training and very little analysis, understanding or assessment of whether this training is actually useful for the people who are trained. So I think, first of all, a stronger emphasis on evidence and to make sure that we actually get a good understanding of what works. Secondly, a strong effort to recruit, support, train and motivate educators at all levels, which is absolutely the key for success. And then making sure that this is a debate that is held as a public issue of interest and not just as a matter for the vested interest of education and the administration that administer education. So I think that essentially what works is when societies have a collective understanding of the importance of education. And let me introduce a, a moment of optimism in what seems a pretty bleak scenario, especially because 
most studies, especially most progressive studies of education, make a huge effort, actually, usually very successfully and very compellingly, a huge effort to show how the social determinants of education are strong. And that ends up giving you the impression that nothing can change. So what is the evidence there? Well, it's true that, you know, in most Western societies, the least social mobility happens with the top and bottom 20% of economic wealth. So the poorest and the wealthiest are those who don't move, neither downwards nor upwards. But then the other evidence is that even poverty is not destined in education. Let me give you an example. Vietnam, it's a country where the bottom 10% of 15-year-old kids perform better at school than the top 10% of kids in the entire Latin American continent. And let me give you another example. You take the countries where the performance of education system is the best today, they are not the same as they were 30 years ago. So policies can change reality. Poverty is not destiny, but you need to make sure that there's a collective effort to improve. And that is all that is required to make sure that you have successful outcomes in education. There's actually a very simple thing you can do, which is to introduce more evidence in the way education is designed. Because, I mean, maybe just because, you know, everybody has a little bit of education, so everybody thinks they know about it. But the reality is that policies in education are rarely driven by evidence. Most countries, especially in continental Europe, most countries keep introducing legislation about education in response to challenges of poor outcomes without having a clue as to whether the previous legislation has been successful or not. So, just a modicum of evidence-driven policy, an involvement of educators, and the consciousness of the relevance for society of education policy is, I think, the starting point for success. You mentioned uh, the need to bring in uh, core analysis and understand the impact of policies as well. Uh, it is difficult for me not to mention uh, Nobel laureate J.J. Ekman, Uh, that has won uh, the Nobel Prize in economics, among other things, to, for proving and analyzing one dollar, actually, we can say one euro here, spent in early childhood education has a much wider return than uh, public money uh, spent later on uh, for during tertiary education, for instance. So th that's one of the key findings that uh, literature and science tells us, is that early childhood education is really key. Uh, we have long advocated for uh, proper child unions push on uh, children's education because that we identify that that is uh, the necessary policy to exactly fight the, these inequalities and to make education a system for everybody to uh, attain their best potential. How do you actually see the transformation of child education? I mean, the evidence of the importance of Child, early childhood education for social equality, for actual productivity and, and growth, never mind well-being, is absolutely compelling. And it has been so for quite a number of years. So there is no dispute about the evidence that spending, as you said, spending in early childhood education uh, pays economically, apart from the social justice objective. So that is undisputable. The challenge with early childhood education is that as for the rest of education policy, and even more in this case, you can spend a lot of money there with very different results. Because in the case of early childhood, it's even more obvious than in other cases, what I was saying before, that it's not just about improving early childhood institutions, 
uh, or kindergartens. For example, what good is an early childhood education system that doesn't go along with good maternity leave? And what good is a maternity leave system if you don't have paternity leave system that makes sure that the burden of childcare is not just on the shoulders of women as it has been for so many thousands of years. So the challenge with early childhood policies is that it cannot be just about early childhood institutions or schools. You have to make sure that this is part of a welfare state that is intelligently looking at the welfare of its citizens. This is, I think, the key. I think that the question is, you know, what can be done at the European level? Because this is, in the end, the sense of it. I sympathize, and I'm very much in agreement with the proposal of the child union. It's just that we should avoid this tendency that is actually very frequent from all sides, that when you don't like something that your government is doing, you expect the European Union to do it. The risk of this is that the European Union will never satisfy anybody because there's always somebody that is not satisfied with any kind of policy. So I think one has to take a careful look at what is it that should be at the European level. The answer for me is not so much to dictate any childhood policies, but actually to do a few other things. First, throw money at it. I mean, the EU, especially lately, has finally decided that it has to take a stronger view, a stronger role in social protection and inclusion. Early childhood, there's only evidence that should be at the core of these policies. So throwing money at it is a very good starting point. The second, I think, is to make a forceful, very strong case for evidence-based policymaking. And that includes something that the EU has not used, I think, sufficiently as a weapon, which is the naming and shaming power of evidence. And just as it does, without shame, in many areas of macroeconomic policy, the Commission is all the time pointing fingers at countries that don't perform well economically. Well, I think it could be bolder in pointing at countries that are not doing well for its citizens in terms of equality, including early childhood care. And then I think also a normative. In my time as in BG Education, the Commission produced the recommendation on early childhood in 2013, I think. That is being, it's easy to criticize that as a toothless instrument. And it is, I mean, it's not because you have a recommendation that things will improve for the life of children in Europe. But having that recommendation at the European level, I think, is a weapon, an encouragement, and an incentive for those part of civil society who want to fight for more social justice and who can use the argument of what the EU says should be the case to promote their own use at national level. So the normative aspect, the financial aspect, and the evidence-based policymaking, I think, is the key of what the European Union can do for education broadly and more specifically for early childhood. That's a very interesting uh, approach, dear Xavier. I give a, a little reminder to our readers while I let you think about uh, one key message that you would like to leave at the end of our podcast to national leaders to somehow make them see that there is value in this idea of cooperating at the European level for uh, more evidence-based and coordination on uh, an education policy. So something that somehow can inspire our listeners to see value from cooperating on, on education at the European level. I would like instead to take a second to remind to our audience that if uh, they are interested in this topic, they can find on FEP's website more, particularly on two uh, stream of research. 
one related to the child union. There's a nice report on towards the child union reducing inequality in the EU through investment in children's early years. And there's a special call too that you can find online. And the other work is instead on uh, the lifelong learning and individual learning account, which we have developed in partnership with the Jacques Delors Institute. And you can find easily a report on towards an individual right to adult learning for all Europeans and more is yet to come on these topics because we know that we have to be ambitious but it's also thanks to uh, personalities like yours that we we hope that we can uh, you know push a little bit up the ambitions of European and national policy making on this because the time requires uh, big changes and big inspiration Xavier what have we to hope Uh, for education policies in the near future? Well, you know, I think I am, I'm an optimist and I'm an optimist because optimism is a strategy because if we don't believe that a better future is possible, we will not have the strength to make the future better. So I believe that we can do better. And I think that with the engagement of civil society, which is where I work now, I mean, I spent many years in a multilateral institution. Now I work for civil society and I spend my days admiring people, especially young people who have an extraordinary faith that the world can be better and that they can help make it better. So this is what makes me optimistic above all about the future of education, especially I would say when I look outside Europe, because you know it is really striking how in countries that have far, far more stringent and difficult challenges than Europe, Sub-Saharan Africa, for example, You have a generation of young people who actually have extraordinary faith on the transformational power of education. And it is this faith that will save our societies and will save us. And I think that this is the aspiration we have to keep. And as for a message to leaders, I think leaders are very busy people. So you can only give them very simple messages. And I would have one very simple one. If you think education is expensive, try ignorance. This should be enough to give us strength to do more. <laughs> Thanks very much. I appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you for listening. Thank you for your attention. If you found our conversation interesting, do not hesitate to share it on social media with the hashtag FEPSTalks. More is yet to come. Stay tuned. <laughs>